You're listening to the Black Brother Podcast, and this is episode 16. Today's guest is Kevin Baldwin. Kevin is the owner and head coach at the highly successful Wolfpack Martial Arts, which is home to multiple WACO World and European medalists. Kevin has worked with many great champions within the world of WACO, such as his wife Natasha, and also guys like Michael Venom Page. In Scotland, Wolfpack has become somewhat of a place to go for guys looking to cross over from ITF Taekwondo and try their hand at some kickboxing. And in today's episode, I chat to Kevin on why he thinks this is. As always, make sure to like, share and subscribe and share on social media as it helps the podcast continue to grow. Enjoy. What's up, Kev? Hello, how are you? Not too bad. Um, so we were just talking briefly before I started recording. Uh, how are you finding uh, life under lockdown with uh, COVID-19? Oh, uh, super frustrating, I'm sure, like everybody else. Um, having a job that doesn't involve a desk at the best of times is... Uh, making this a lot harder but um got to try and stay positive and hopefully as many of us as possible we'll see it for the other side from a business point of view and from a martial arts school point of view and obviously the the health ramifications that come with it as well but we're trying to stay positive and be as proactive like everybody else with the online content and diversifying our business but yeah it's it's it's, it's challenging it's challenging for sure yeah so have you have you taken to online classes and Online, yeah, online so um, basically we've, when we thought that the closure was coming, we held off for as long as we could. And uh, those three days prior to gyms and that being closed down in the UK, we basically spent two days solid filming hit workouts, tutorials on kicking to little dragons content to stretching videos. Um, and we put it all on like a closed group for our members to hopefully show that we're still trying to build value into their memberships and the response has been amazing like we're really lucky to have gained this organic environment where people you know we've got, we've got a lot of good people i think notoriously gyms more boxing and other other styles back in the day seem to have this spit and sawdust and you only were part of the team if you were tough enough those attitudes have have kind of gone and we, we, we're surrounding ourselves with really good people and uh we're very lucky to still have these people around us now, you know, nearly a month into this. But we also appreciate that, you know, there's a lot of self-employed people out there that are going through the same struggle. So we kind of have to keep everything in mind. But we're doing our bit online. Um, and we're also spending this time trying to re-educate. I've just signed up to do the precision nutrition course um, to try and diversify and give something back to to athletes. I, I was told when I put the, to do the course, like, why was I doing it? And if I can help maybe, you know, make a weight cut safer <laughs> and I get to spend the next like six months spending time on re-educating myself and that and get rid of some of the horror stories that are in all martial arts, then it's only going to, you know, help me and, and the people around me. So, yeah. Yeah, the Precision Nutrition is a, it's a, it's a great, great course. It's one I've looked at doing, uh, doing myself and um, hopefully... I don't necessarily know if I'll pick up onto this one, but maybe towards the end of the year on the, the second entry to do, I might, I might get onto that one. And uh, Yeah, I, I just got into the, they released it early this time because of the virus. So I was on the pre, the pre-registration list and uh, I thought I'm doing nothing with my time anyway. So um, I thought it was yeah. a really good opportunity to learn how to learn again, which has been, been the hardest part of it, if I'm honest. The content's been okay, but actually structuring learning for me has been, the biggest problem I, i'm not i'm not a person that um even lesson plans in my classes i'm very much uh, off the top of my head and i like to flow in that natural organic way so having to sit down and 
write myself like a learning timetable has been the biggest challenge. Did you find, uh, did you find, like you said, you, you spent a couple of days kind of preparing content? Do you think that was a big help? Because I, f- I think a lot of people maybe were, were caught on the back foot of the, the classes had to, had, to st- had to stop and then people had yeah. to really try and catch up then to, to fill the void. Whereas you said you had a couple of, um, yeah, like, a couple of content. I'm glad we did that way content. because if we didn't do it that way, I feel like we would have been breaking every principle that was based on lockdown if we were constantly going back to the club or you know streaming from live and i'm not saying that with any judgment for anybody that did because right now everyone's doing their best to try and make their business work for them so i'm not here to pass judgment on anyone's actions but i'm glad from my personal point of view we had two or three days to get in get the content done is the content endless no will i will i have to revisit the club at some stage for sure but um, you know, that's when I would regard it as essential. I've done everything I can personally to do it prior to lockdown. Um, we've probably got a month's worth, if I'm honest. So we are beginning to dry up. But also, you know, this is a perfect opportunity to thank the people that got behind us. Just two days ago, Jack Felton got in contact from the United States. And I, we, we were just, you know, shooting the breeze. And he was like, how's things? I'm like, tough. And he's like, yeah, same. He's like, listen, I've got some pre-recorded footage here. I can put a personal message and you can use that for your members area as well. So now my guys have got like an online seminar with Jack Felton for the next two weeks. Um, so it just shows, you know, when the chips are down, there's still some great people around us who you can lean on. Sometimes you just got to ask, which is the hardest bit, you know? Yeah, great. Everybody, everybody's chipping in, I suppose, you know, and trying to do a bit like you know, we can yeah. share. And it's a great opportunity. Like you said, maybe where member, your members wouldn't have got a chance to to train or have a do a session with Jack Felt I know they've got some sort of an opportunity there like yeah. it's, it's something positive that maybe came out of it if exactly. are small I suppose and then um, in terms of like you said you didn't plan any classes uh, do you feel like that's is that something to start to kind of get into more do you think or a bit more oh. structured or? like yeah I, like okay so a good friend of mine's Elijah Everill right and uh He's actually got hold of the podcast, and um, he'll be out in a few. He'll be out in a couple of weeks. He was on for a chat. Oh, or... really? Oh, literally yeah. one of the best brains in fighting. But one of the things I love about Eliza is, you look at my iPad and I, I, I you look at my lesson plans, and uh, I've wrote the title lesson plan. But you go to Elijah's iPad, and he's like, literally, he's, honestly, that that iPad's got some serious value. If anyone can get their hands on it, because <laughs> he lesson plans like ridiculous amounts. Um, so for me it's difficult right so for situations like this and obviously the clubs are growing we opened up a beautiful second facility recently in Livingston and I I envisage that we'll probably do that again at some stage and I'm really really um, kind of I'm one of these people that I struggle to get my head around the bigger we grow I get really anxious that we're going to lose the quality that we've spent so long creating and if I do not learn to write this down and be able to notate what's in my head then I'm going to end up with a brand that's maybe fantastic on paper and, you know, pays the bills, but will keep me up at night knowing that the standards dropped every time we move a mile away from the original location. So it's, it's this key skill that I need to improve on. Um, but I'm not going to promise you it's going to be tomorrow because it's, it's not going to be an overnight fix for me. I'm going to, I get, I get really flustered really quickly. Like if I can't see where I'm going with something straight away, and someone expects me to do it, I kind of just lose it completely. So um, it's something I have to improve on for sure. 
Yeah, I put, I'm guessing there is some sort of a, a session plan, like you said, in your head, like maybe for these couple of weeks we're working on this and this yeah. time about it, just maybe not so structured. Like it's not you're turning up to a class and going, um, I guess we'll do no nah, no there is I'm, a, a I, I, plan in place it's just maybe not necessarily put on paper and and it's not maybe set in stone it's probably flexible in your head yeah like it's, everything's flexible in my head like uh, we do we're, we're very lucky to do a lot of seminars um there's a couple of occasions where damien gormley from white tiger event has said to me can you you know we've had someone pull out can you come in and jump in and do two hours teaching for me i thrive on that like i'll go in there and give you two hours of content like like pressing a button but if you said to me, Kevin, like in the two hours, what are you going to do? And you break down each bullet point, I'd be like, mm, no, like I'd probably struggle, which is, again, it's something from a self-development point of view that I need to improve on. Yeah. Because it's not even like, it's great to have, have that plan, even if it is written down, but if it's not, like you say, if it's not flexible, like you could be starting you're halfway through the session, you're kind of realizing, well, actually what I'm seeing here on the floor is taking a little bit of a turn. And maybe I'll actually, maybe I'm going to spend a bit of focus maybe yeah. on fixing that or working on that. Whereas if you stick to your plan, it could be completely the opposite way, which mightn't fit. That's actually with the people on the floor at all. To what you're going to go, if you I think that's a really good point because I think that's what defines the difference between an instructor and a coach. And I think now I've become more of a coach than an instructor. Um, like when I go, everyone has the intentions of teaching their best stuff when they go to a seminar. They want to go there and shine and look, you know, the dog's bollocks, but sometimes that's just not possible you get there and you realize that the limitation has been set in front of you sometimes so you spend more time working on a particular thing to right that wrong and i think you have to be that intuitive as a coach when you're in a tatami you're at a tournament every fight is given a set plan when they train with you but when you get to the competition side of things that set plan can go out the window pretty much within three seconds so i guess now i teach more similar to the way i coach if that makes sense um, yeah. which is I'll intuitively see what's in front of me and make the alteration there and then. And I'll have no kind of issue deviating because that's what needs to happen because I'm treating it almost like a competition. Um, whereas an instructor is probably that person, that dream person. That they, will, they will have that technique down. They will move on because that's what the syllabus dictates. Again, it's horses for courses. But at this stage of my career, a good few years, few years on, I feel more comfortable coaching probably than I do instructing, if I'm honest. Yeah. And so when then did you, like you say, when did you get started into in kickboxing? So I started just before my 18th birthday. I was actually quite late to the party. Um, and then I'm 34 this year, but I was coaching full time from the off. I was given an opportunity by my instructor, Curtis Page at the time to pretty much go full time. Um, and it was, you know, brief chats. I was meant to open up my own business, actually, a theatre school, believe it or not. Um, and Interesting. he said, to, yeah, there's, there's loads. Of, I'm not even going to touch on half of it. It's hilarious. But, <laughs> um, yeah, like, I was given the opportunity to, he said, come and work for me and see how similar the structure is. And I never left, basically. Um, I had no wage. I was said, he said to me, go and recruit some people on the high street from my club. I'll give you £50 per person that, you know, joins along to try on a class or, or joins the club. First month I made 600 or 800 pounds in my first month of 50 pounds per persons. And then um, I kind of built from there. So um, I've always had the gift of the gab. Um, and you guys will appreciate the Blarney Stone more than ever and I've visited it a few times. So um, <laughs> like from my perspective, it's, it was a weird way into martial arts, but it's obviously a few years on now. So then like when you started, did you, would you have competed much then yourself? Yeah, 
coming through. Yeah, so to start off with, I threw myself in everything. Like within the second year, like uh, Michael Page was working with me at my club. So my second year, I was kind of getting to go to all these internationals and getting smashed by names that I actually coach opposite now, which is hilarious. Um, like these guys were giving me my first digs way before I was doing kind of novice divisions. Um, every rule Michael kind of set was like, if you're going to do a novice division, you're going to do an intermediate. If you're going to do an intermediate, you're going to do advanced. And, and kind of 10 years ago, there wasn't much of a split. So it was like under 80, under 90 or whatever it was. And you end up yeah. doing the black belt division in most places anyway. So I got to, you know, fight some really cool people really early on. And your growth goes through the roof when that happens. Yeah, I suppose when you're fighting them top level guys, you have to, you have to adjust fairly fast. Like it's a, it's a quick learning curve. Yeah, and even if you don't adjust, guess what? There's always the next time when it's going to be a little less painful. So there's, there's some form of improvement there anyway. Uh, was, would you have always kind of preferred maybe coaching to competing or was it kind of an even enough split across your enjoyment in the no, sport like, that stage? Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a realist. Um, I, uh, I love fighting and I still love the idea of fighting and, you know, all these things. But two things, like, firstly, when we when I moved to Edinburgh with Natasha, like, her career was always better than mine. She was always better than me. And when we opened up our own club, we had, a, like, you know, a, quite a big following quite early on. And you can't tell someone to join your club and then still want to play alongside. And you have to take a step back at some stage. And the second thing I noticed and realised quite quickly was I'm a very, very good coach, like an excellent coach. I don't say it of any big-headedness. And I was probably a good fighter at best. And um, because of that, I got off on the coaching as much as I did fighting. Um, but the difference was I was just better at coaching. So, you know, I humbled myself really early on. And, you know, it's, it's, it, was, it was chalk and cheese. Like me and Natasha's careers next to each other weren't paralleled in the slightest. We fought at the same time, but she was on a different plane of existence. So from my point of view, I can try and rival that and get heartbroken on a daily basis. Or I can actually, you know, I actually found something that I was very, very good at and stumbled upon um, anyway. So I never felt any resentment. But the enjoyment factor, which is what you asked me, I'd, I'd happily fight tomorrow if I didn't have the responsibilities that I have. But also I have to be realistic in how far we're going. Today's circuit, absolutely nowhere is the answer to that <laughs> question. Um, so I, I found my place and I'm very happy with it. Yeah, because my, my, uh, my own coach, uh, Adrian Burnick he kind of said when he was competing he was competing and we still had people starting to get people from the club onto the national team and he said he kind of felt that he knew it was time to maybe pull away from competing as when um, yeah. the people like were the people he was coaching were like better than him like they, he, their goals were kind of passing out his goals and yeah. he, he was got, felt like it was time to maybe focus on helping them achieve their goals and that was more of a focus yeah, I think, and I think that's true. And I think also, like, there's twofold to that. That occurs at two parts in the, in the coach's journey, at the beginning and at the end. And what I mean by that is, at the beginning of it, you start having the realisation people around you are actually better than you and you're coaching them. Um, and two, people do different things at that stage. They resent it and they start holding back, which I think is ridiculous. Or they run with it. And I think the second time that happens is when you become a great coach and then you start actually realising, well, hold on, that's because of me. And I think that realisation of people becoming great around you sometimes takes a few years of kind of treading the boards to appreciate your own coaching ability. Um, the irony is the the first phase of it, when you first realise it, it's probably the same reason. It was probably because of you also. 
you just don't have the mentality to realize it um so yeah it's 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 a difficult one um and it's always going to be a bitter pill to swallow because you get into this for the love of the sport and the love of competing or at least i did and then you're going into a path that's relatively unknown um and it's kind of up to you to find your place in that coaching ladder um, by looking at the people, your peers, and looking at people above and setting the same goals you would have as a fighter. Like, you want to beat that person. Well, as a coach, when I first came onto the scene, I wanted to be able to match that person's intelligence. I wanted to match that person's win rate. It's something we, we strive to do on a, on a well, not so much right now, but for every tournament this year, I, I set very clear goals for myself and my team. And the irony is we smashed every single one of them. You know, the Wacko British tournament this year, we were the top of the leaderboard. I was going there with the intention of top three. For a team in Scotland to come number one out of all the clubs in Britain, bearing in mind some of these teams, from a size point of view, destroy us. They'll have 40 fighters. You know, we'll have 15, 16. So for us to still become top of that leaderboard that sports data has <laughs> driven this competitive <laughs> yeah. nature, like, and we have the little Scottish flag next to our name, you know, even, even from a boy from London, who now lives in Scotland, that, that gives a massive sense of pride. Um, and I do that for every tournament. Like I look, I look who's registered and go, right, realistically, where are we going to go? And then unrealistically, where can I get to? And I kind of, I'm in the middle usually. If I bracket between third and fifth place, we usually come fourth. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I'm still trying to work it out. It's not a complete science, but you know, we're, we're doing very, very well. So this whole part of the year, as though there's a serious nature to what's going on around us right now, and none of us, believe me, are taking it lightly in regards to when we talk about other subjects. But my subject is kickboxing. And yeah, it yeah. is super frustrating when we, we apply it to our personal situation, you know? Yeah, it's a fact that, like, like that you see, like, you see like, Gary Neville is, is tweeting a lot of stuff and his main focus seems like it's football and everybody's going, well, football isn't the issue right now. But it's, I know. It's, everybody's in their own bubble and, like I said, uh, everybody's affected, is concentrating. He's on. a funny and one. People like, have ridiculed. They've ridiculed him, but I, like I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm not going to spend too much time on Neville for sure. But like <laughs> from my point of view, like I believe he donated the same as Ronaldo, right? He actually put his hospital, he put his hotel up for use for NHS staff during it all. So I think yeah. people need to be a little bit shyer coming forwards when it comes down to him talking about his passion because he's done his little bit by the sounds of it. Um, but it is his, it's his subject, right? And it's also his job. He's yeah. a pundit now. So... Like that's his personal circumstance. He's just got a platform to talk about it. That's the difference. Yeah. Everyone else is talking about their own jobs. So just no one cares because they don't have yeah. a platform to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one hundred percent. And like you said, like I gotta find even ourselves. Like you said, you don't you compared to some of the other teams that would be going to the champion like British Championships. That you'd have a relatively small team compared to some teams. Uh, we'd be kind mm. of the same in Taekwondo here in Ireland. And um, I always kind of try to think is like we might not take. We don't have as many competitors to take as many medals, but if we can have like maybe look at well, if every competitor takes a medal, that's a kind of a, it's a maybe a, a good ratio to start. You know, it's kind of how many medals per competitor did you take as opposed to well, we had this many competitors and took loads of medals because we just had so many competitors. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important because I, well, two two things there. Like, let's not underplay the the, the taekwondo in Ireland, like. Um, you guys talk about I see my family are all from Carrick and Shore in Tipperary so I spent most of my time growing up in Ireland right. I think sometimes Ireland definitely, it's definitely a fighting nation first and foremost but they also the Irish nation like to kind of underplay it sometimes like 
any time we've come across a fighter in Ireland, you take it seriously, number one. Secondly, when they've got that little taekwondo edge and I know that my students know them, I have to also prick my ears up a little bit more. Um, especially <laughs> Natasha's ended up fighting a lot of Irish girls like from the taekwondo world recently. In the taekwondo world in general, to be honest, has kind of had a big takeover in, in uh, like contact. The last two years, Natasha's fought one, two, three, four, four, maybe five taekwondo fighters in the last two Irish Opens on the way to winning them. Um, so... Yeah, there's definitely some talent there. And we've had, I think it's Louise McGar, she came over to train for a bit. Like, um, yeah. And we have the two sisters. I'm, I'm terrible with their names. Um, Sarah and Jenny. That? Yeah, like, Sarah and Jenny, they're lovely. But they're absolute like Rottweilers on a the mat. They're trying to take your face off happily. Yeah. Um, and then Sam Delacour, Tash fought as well. Um, she fought the 60 yeah, kilo, 55 kilo. Yeah, yeah I guess yeah. she fought. Yeah, Dutch girl. She fought her last year. Um, so that you know they're propping up everywhere now, and um, yeah, I love the fact that we've got so many taekwondo guys. I've got some really cool guys who train with me now. Like Giles was on your show a few weeks ago, um, and Michael McRoberts now helps teach for me as well. Both come uh, from a local um, taekwondo club here. I wanted to get involved with um, kickboxing a little bit more, so um, they come from Julia Cross originally, and Julia's obviously got a great pedigree herself. So. To have yeah. these guys come into the fold as well has been really cool. We've got a couple more, like we've got, you know, Prentice, Todd, we've all been involved in this type of uh, taekwondo world. And it's been really cool because they offer a real different diversity um, in, in, well, kickboxing, like contact slash what's now taekwondo. It's all pretty much yeah. the same thing. I think people are in denial with that as well, but that's another subject altogether. Uh, in terms of like as a sport and the rule set, it kind of pretty much is the same. I think like I think you kind of have points uh, kickboxing, and then you kind of you have a light contact kickboxing, and kind of in the middle is kind of is taekwondo. It's like you, there's some things that you can take from points, and then there's other things that you can take from light contact, and then it's kind of in the middle. You have to kind of gel the two together in taekwondo. Yeah, I think it's a funny one because like I see people on social media quite a lot get hung up on the fact that this taekwondo fight is here, they're doing kickboxing, they're winning kickboxing. Yeah, because they're kickboxing. No, 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 they're still doing taekwondo. Let, let's not kind of change it too much here. They're, they're doing taekwondo. They're just not throwing a back fist to the head because it's not allowed. Like, <laughs> yeah, people could try and like, it's, it's like the whole like, you know, when um, Andy Murray wasn't winning, he was Scottish and then he'd win something and then he was British. <laughs> it's like yeah. people want to label this person, oh, they're a kickboxer who does some taekwondo. No, no, they're a taekwondo fighter that does taekwondo, but they're just doing it in a kickboxing arena. I think, I think some people like kind of get hung up on that or try and, you know, claim something that isn't the case. Like, let's face it, it's pretty much the same thing these days. And in, in our world anyway, you know, they, you know, taekwondo guys can transition into light contact very, very comfortably. There's no change. People come to me to do kickboxing. And the first thing I'm saying to them now is, well, I'm not going to change anything technically. I'm just going to give you somewhere new to play. Um, um, it's a new okay. tournament. Like they're like, oh, but you know, I need to learn kickboxing. All right, well, maybe punch a little bit more. But via that, just go and do what you're winning with in taekwondo. Because especially in the wacko scoring system, it's pretty close to being the same thing. Like you haven't got a bigger area, and you get warnings and minuses a little bit quickly. But ultimately, the score inside of it is identical. So let's not deviate from the plan too much. 
Yeah, like that. It's not necessarily your style has to change too much. Your your technique. Mm-hmm. It's much. You just have to a little bit of adaptation to the to the rule set to some degree is all you kind of need. And and like that, nearly just exposing yourself to that type of competition more will will help you improve more. Yeah, that's the that's the most important bit. Yeah, the more you step into smaller ring and and out of the end, the more you get used to having to not being able to step out as much. Um, that's I think the big the biggest kind of thing to get used to. It's not necessarily a big change in style or how you how you try use your front leg or how you use your hands. It's it's an adaptation to just a small bit under rules that that needs to be done. And usually winners are very good at winning, right? One hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah. Like, like, look at Timothy, no Timothy Boss is a good example of that. Yeah, like it's no coincidence that the best fighters in Taekwondo are, tend to do very well and sometimes are the best fighters in kickboxing because like you said, it's like, I, I think to some degree fighting is fighting to some to some degree. Like, yeah. you know, like it can just be a, a adjusting to the rule set sometimes. Um, is, like you see, Tim, Timothy's a good example. Like he had a great fight with Ian O'Hare actually in Ireland. That was super close. Um and I don't know if you saw that one, but that was for me. Yeah, was, I did great fight. Great fight. I really enjoyed yeah, that Yeah, great fight. But like, and then Timothy will go and do the same thing again, like in Taekwondo. For me, like, I look at Natasha and what she does in kickboxing. If she had a Taekwondo black belt, would she do that in the ITF world? Yeah, I think Natasha actually would. Why? Because she's very good at winning. Like, I think that's the key point. You've got people who are good at kicking and punching, but and maybe not necessarily good at winning. And that's a, that's a real, you know, important point to, to, to kind of realize just because you're a good technician or you're a good fighter, if you're not used to winning and then you become very good at winning, that necessarily doesn't translate. Like you need to have the ability to win, recognize when you're on the verge of winning and embrace it rather than backing off. And I think both of us now could list great fighters, but more importantly, we could categorize the great winners. And I think that's the difference as well. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like, so like, there is a few people like that. Like Natasha would be one, and there's a couple of other who you'd like to see because like, Taekwondo can obviously transition over to kickboxing, but it can't. Really yeah, go the, doesn't go the other way because there's the martial arts point of view where you need to be a black belt in that. So it would be great <laughs> to see like, people like that come across, you know, and, and see how they would do in in Taekwondo. And I think like even in that, like you'd see some great fights that if the, if that kind of transitioned the other way, like see the different rule, like the different kind of rule set with the bigger ring. And, Here's the thing, though. Here's the controversial you know. bit of it. I think Taekwondo guys coming to kickboxing will do better than most kickboxers going to Taekwondo. Would you think so? That's kind of yeah. not which was not maybe the it wasn't the view I would have expected from somebody, you know, in kickboxing. It's not necessarily the And the the, the reasons, however, aren't probably the you know, this is what kind of humbles the argument. I think going from a freestyle art to a to a traditional art, there'll always be a barrier from a judging point of view. Firstly. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, everyone can put a suit on and put a dobok on and put a, like a black belt on, but ultimately you're going to be recognized in a different way, first and foremost. But secondly, like if you look at it from a technical capability and maybe take away the subcategory of wacko and then say kickboxers in general, I think the ITF that I've been, you know, lucky enough to be involved in is, a, is of a super high standard. I guess the argument becomes a little bit more interesting when you say wacko kickboxing versus the ITF that we're both talking about. Um, okay, yeah. I truly believe that the winners will become winners, but in general, like if you took, say winners are 2%, I still think 98% of Taekwondo guys will come in and probably have better results than 98% of generalized kickboxing. Um, I just think from a rule set point of view that it would, it's easier to come into kickboxing and kind of shine. Whereas Taekwondo, there seems to be 
a certain way of playing the game and the rules are a lot stricter. At least that's what it feels like from an outsider. Um, that's maybe where you come in and you can educate me. But from the outside looking in, sometimes I look and go, I'm still quite confused by it. It's, it's kind of like the amateur boxing analogy sometimes. I look at it and go, that person's won the fight. And then I go, oh, well, maybe not. Like, I get, you know, but that could be an ill education from my point of view. Yeah, like in terms of like, there's sometimes like the like in taekwondo the the stepping out rule like the exit kind of rule you, mm-hmm. you can, there's you can waste a bit of time by by stepping out quite a bit because it's just one warning and then every three warnings is the is you lose a point and it's kind of no not really separate like kickboxing you have only a limited amount of exits that you can have and yeah so I think that kind of I would like to see maybe it move a little bit more towards that because I feel sometimes and I've done it myself as a fighter is because you're going to play the rules is that if you're winning the last couple of seconds, you will step out a little bit and, you know, it'll be a little bit slow coming I back I think in. kickboxing had to you know? do what it had to do in regards to that. I think that's a really interesting subject you brought up because, again, it's the same kind of conversation. It kind of sounds boring, but like 98% of people were affected by the rule change when they did the minus point within point fighting and also then the one click per judge on the exit in light contact. The 2% at the top just kept winning. <laughs> like they, <laughs> yeah, 100%. They kept, they adapted. Like, and the the ninety eight percent, well, the the ten percent were in the top bracket, spent a bit more time moaning about the change in the rules rather than actually adapting to it. Um, I think the rule change in the exits was essential because it was kind of getting out of hand, and like people were just literally just chilling on the side of a map because they were unfit. They were great technicians, but they had no cardio, so they literally un, un unbuckled their head guard and boot it across three to time to take twenty seconds breather. Like it, it was getting wild, so I think that I think I think Wacko did the same, the right thing there, and implementing that rule, it stopped people milking the system. Um, but again, when you look in such a kicking-based sport like Taekwondo, you need a bigger area, and that, you know, on on a percentage basis, you're going to spend more time outside the ring, like just on a percentage base. Um, yeah. I here's, I'm going to throw a question back to you if that's all right, because it makes it a bit more yeah. interesting. Oh yeah, belt away. And you have to be as honest as you've asked me to be today. So you got five, <laughs> let's, we'll go back to our category. You've got five winners in Taekwondo. So your top five Taekwondo versus your top five, say, kickboxers, like contact. All of them are fighting wacko rules. Who wins it? Uh, I think Taekwondo wins. Yes, yeah, I'd agree with that. I, th- I, take, yeah, I, think, I think Taekwondo wins. Uh, like a lot of, like, I just, I'll just look at the, if I go to like, look through the, the world championships, Reese that was on last year in Taekwondo, like a lot of those guys have done very well in wacko kickboxing, like because like Fatali, yeah. they win in the fifty-seven and the sixty-three. Julio Carlos would have done well, but like Timmy Boss does well in that section, like across yeah. both sports. And um, Magomed Nardinov, who won minus seventy, has competed in kickboxing, has done, and has I think maybe the Austrian Classic or, or Hungarian Open he did last year, and he yeah. he took a medal there. Like uh, guys like Alamine. I've done well. Yeah, yeah, nice guy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Colin Adolfs had before another German mm-hmm. guy who has been world champion in Taekwondo. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I look at the guys who've won. A lot of them have crossed over and done quite well. See, that's why it's not so controversial, right there, for that reason. They've kind yeah. of proven they've, they've done a bit of time. They've proven their worth on a, on a mat, and I think that's what kind of where kickboxing. I would love Taekwondo to give kickboxing the same opportunity that the Taekwondo guys have been given. And then yeah. that becomes a harder question. 
it does, like you said, it's it's much easier because it, like we've only seen it one way. We haven't seen the kickboxers come back the other way and compete and yeah. you know, take on the rule set to see how they would do. So it is kind of a, it's an, I suppose it's nearly an unfair question to or like you know it's yeah. un, it's unfair, yeah. but based on what we know, like you'd have to say yeah, take on makes it problem. fun though, right? <laughs> it does, yeah, it, it does. I I, I love always think like I said, I just kind of. As a as a fan of just of both kind of sports, I just want to see the, the best fights nearly. It's and you know, yeah, it's, it's, I'd like to see him across all rule sets, really, both rule sets to kind of see who who's the best. But uh, it's unfortunately not not happening. We but, did a um, we did a fight night a few years ago, and we were trying to just trying to think outside the box. And we had these hybrid fights, and it was you did one round points fighting, one round light contact, and then if it was if uh, one person won a round each, we flick gloves, we flick a coin. And then heads would be points again, and then tails would be like contact. And That's actually, very interesting. Very interesting, actually. People that is. really enjoy. I know you've seen there's some stuff in the ring right now where you can do like a round of boxing, a round of MMA, a round of full contact, a round of K1. I've seen all that come into play in the last few years. But for us, we did this like eight years ago at a local like small fight night we ran. People loved it, by the way. Like it ticked every box for the hardcore point fighters, um, which is still my favorite style out of all of them, by the way. Um, to the guys who were really into their light contact, it was it kind of just ticked all the box. It was really good and a lot of fun as well. Like it, people seem to take it less seriously and kind of got behind the night as well. So I really enjoy hearing people and talking about crossover athletes. And I'm like, like I said, I'm lucky to work with so many of them now. Um, so it's, it's 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 a nice time to be coaching for sure. Yeah, so would you be, uh, is your club, like, would that be predominantly points or would it be a kind of a 50-50 split between? Yeah, points? since we've been infiltrate, infiltrated by uh, Taekwondo, I'm, um, I'm probably <laughs> still 80%, 85% points. We've got a little bit of full contact, which we dabble in for fun, um, but we're still mostly points. Um, I still feel like points offers one of the best foundations for all the styles, like, I think you can you can learn points and then go through and learn light contact or even do taekwondo i believe i feel like points is a great foundation i don't think you can like learn and study light contact for the same period of time and then try and do points and be as successful i think from a foundation art it's quite unique in that respect yeah like light contact is not like it's at the, the kind of style now it's very uh, hand heavy like you know it's a lot a lot of punching yeah Sometimes the legs. I'm, I'm talking more about the five yeah. years into your, your five years into your kickboxing, uh, but if you're five years into your points, you can still go and become really successful in light contact. I think if you're five years into light contact, I think you'd find it very difficult to be successful in points. Again, I'm not talking about that two percent winner bracket because they'll find any way to make it happen in any style. But I mean, in general, that's kind of the rule of thumb that I go by. Yeah, I tend to. Yeah, I'd probably agree with you there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like that. I think like one of the reasons I think because the points you have to have that balance between you'll you'll have been training and using your legs and your hands across yeah. that. Time. I think some degree like the light contact, a lot of the kind of the style is a bit more hands orientated than maybe the yeah. legs. That you, you if you if that's the kind of style you've been in and you've been training that for, I would say five years. And then to switch the points and have to suddenly you have to have a very flicky front leg and you haven't had that before. It's it's very hard to just yeah. pick it up. It's kind of you need to put the time in. So yeah, I definitely agree. Like the it's points. even the same with the taekwondo guys trying to teach them points. Like I, I do a lot of training with them, but they've got these beautiful, beautiful traditional lead leg sidekicks that they spend like you know a good three and a half days chambering that lead leg, and then. <laughs> 
and that don't get me wrong if it captures you, you 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 die like it takes your soul away but just making those alterations and you're, you're you spend some time as a coach not just teaching them technically but convincing them there's another way uh, of doing something like you know you can call it watered down you can call it sport specific you can label it whatever you want but if you need us more like a quicker straighted leg lead leg psychic to go under a guard and score one point it's, it's as much about getting over the dialogue as it is about the technique yeah 100 like, like that it potentially has like every technique potentially has used then in the right place you know so yeah even if it's not a massive change, like suddenly they're just going to suddenly, maybe not suddenly change how to use the front leg, but if you've given them a technique or a choice of a te- use of a technique that can be used in a situation in Taekwondo or even kickboxing, then that's useful as well. Yeah, it's not about it's not about right and wrong. It's not about taking something away and, and replacing it. Like, I always, I can't remember who I stole it from. I probably didn't think of this myself, but I'm going to say it anyway, but... <laughs> Um, I was I always use the analogy of like when you're in training, you've got a massive kit bag. You want to put as many tools into that kit bag as possible. And then um, you go to a tournament and then you get your little fancy top 10 mesh bag. And in your, little, in, your, in your mesh bag, you just put the essentials in that are going to win the day. If you don't have that big, crappy, smelly bag of all the kit that's in there in the first place, then you, when it comes to like arming yourself for tournament day, you're kind of restricted. It's, it's best to be... To, to learn everything but then you know be excellent at a, at a handful of things um i know for a fact that uh, i remember who told me the last little section of that was uh ishvan Karali. i was at a seminar with him and Zotmaradi years ago and he was talking about natasha and he was like what does natasha need to do and i started going oh she needs to do this she's that he's like no no because she's she's great at everything kevin but she needs to be excellent at only five things so his arguing point was that when she was going to tournaments she kind of was still bringing her big bag with her and you could have been doing with a smaller shot selection and that's some of the best advice we ever received to be fair um so yeah that's where that last part of that story came from the first part i'm gonna lay claim and say it was mine but again that's probably gonna come out the woodwork to be somebody else's also <laughs> I don't, somebody might fa- somebody might fact check there but well we won't I'm get enjoy- to- <laughs> I, I hope so that'll be good <laughs> uh what do you feel in like a terms like a, or like early specialization Kind of in uh, within martial arts and within within kickboxing, the guys like training uh, people to be like a fourteen or fifteen year old world champion versus maybe playing the long game and having a senior <sighs> world champion. Okay, um, okay. So here's the thing: you set the standard from the off, which I completely appreciate. Um, oh, this is that's an awkward question. <laughs> so. Um, at my club, but then if you see my, we've got a, a logo and we have three stars above it, and it's uh, three wacko titles. It's two two wacko worlds and one wacko pro title. They sit above the logo. As a club, we recognise wacko as the highest standard in kickboxing, and as a club, we think that winning an adult senior world title is the pinnacle of your career. So we recognise them. So once I have another adult senior, adult senior title, yep. there'll be another star appearing on that. But I think there's nothing wrong with setting a high standard as a coach to win everything. But I, you've got to think the long game, surely. Like, you're, otherwise you're going to end up with really great, you run the risk of ending up with really great athletes, but shit human beings. And like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not really interested in too much of that. Like, I spend a lot of time at tournaments. We squad train every week as a club. If you're a shit human being, I don't really want to be around you. So, like, 
that's probably changed a bit over the years for me. I was all about winning and I wouldn't care less if you're a horrible human being. That probably suited me. Uh, then we didn't have to interact anymore. But now I mean, I've got my daughter, she's two years of age. I kind of want her to be around better human beings as well now, I think. So I've become more mindful of the long game, shall we say. But my standards, I've got super motivated kids. Like, honest to God, I've got kids who do six-hour round trip to train with me every Saturday morning. Um, and they do not miss a Saturday. They, they're coming from like Inverness, Aberdeen, um, Stonehaven. But they come, they're part of my squad and they'll come and train. And the hours and motivation that their parents put in is unbelievable. It's, it's, it's to the point of where I think I'm already going to be a rubbish parent, if I'm honest. Because <laughs> if you ask me to take a bullet for my yeah. daughter or step in front of a car for her, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Like, I wouldn't question it. I'd happily jump in front, smile on the face, knowing my daughter survived. But if you ask me to go and drive a six-hour round trip because there's a really good coach somewhere that you've heard there's a good coach, I don't know if I'm going to do that yet. Like, so yeah, I'm yeah. already a slightly crapper parent than the parents that come and train with me. Um, <laughs> hopefully that changes after I see that glint in her eye of passion that she really wants to do whatever she chooses to do. Um, and I see that with the kids I've got. Like, honest to God, the kids... Not, not just the ones that feel like they're a million miles away, but the kids locally, the passion, the focus, and the, the fighting brain and education they already possess is, uh, is, is on a level of frightening. Like, some of my kids' brains would probably outthink a lot of adult fighters. Like, the way they're going through these processes, maybe education's improved, maybe they're just more passionate, but the, 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 the commitment these children have, and, the, and obviously the parents, like, what they're doing is, unbelievable like two and a half three hours down to come and do two and a half three hours training to go back up home two and a half three hours wild absolutely wild yeah so it seems like like that yeah they're building a, a great foundation to potentially step up to being a senior athlete but uh, do you find sometimes that well obviously like like you said they're setting a standard and you want junior world champions and like it's like it's it's not a knock that it doesn't mean anything because it's still like no. A sixteen-year-old can suddenly become twenty-five, and you know it's the highest achievement yeah. they can have for them. But do you find sometimes maybe that it can be hard? Like if you have a junior world champion, they can sometimes maybe feel like they have achieved the highest level. Like let's like, say uh, I was world champion, I don't need to do that kickbox and stuff anymore. I, I'm going to go like I achieved there. There's nothing left for me to achieve. Do you find sometimes it's hard to maybe get across? I that, think it's a, you know, I can, think it's a combination of things because you definitely touched on something. Because if we look across, I don't know about Taekwondo because I can't speak for it, but if we're talking about teenage transition from like you know junior worlds to or even junior comp- competitors in comparison to adult competitors, we definitely lose a lot. There's a lot of outside factors to that as well, obviously. One of them will be that mum and dad are no longer willing to do everything for you and they expect you to wipe your own ass a little bit, which, again, a lot of kids at that age are just unwilling to do. Um, but I think there's a lot of things that I, I don't... I, hand and heart, don't think... I haven't come across many in my own path that have said or acted like, I've, I've completed it, mate. Like, I haven't seen that, that <laughs> yeah. attitude a lot. But... Because I think as well, like as a sport, if they're in the sport for that long to where they obtain a ju- even even a junior world title, which is still a very credible achievement, they're a level of human being that actually shows that they can be humble even at the smallest level and say, you know, I, I've achieved that. But most, I, I can't think of many junior world champions that would say I've completed it thinking that they were, you know, not going to do the adults for that reason. 
I think that if anything, they'd probably win it and, and think the opposite and go, I've won a junior title. I don't think I can do it as an adult. And I think if anything, our jobs as coaches is to try and diminish that kind of doubt that they have in their heads. I think that's probably more to contribute the reason in the drop in numbers more than them thinking that they've done everything. I think as, as kids and at that age, they kind of need that reassurance that they can go on to the next level. And I, I think maybe we dropped the ball a little bit on that one, as well as the outside influences, um, you know, life, you know, partying or just changing lifestyles in general or parents, again, wanting to take a step back for their kids to grow off a mat as much as on it. I think... Yeah. Put that on top of the fact that now a kid suddenly feels, hold on, I did it as a kid, and maybe they actually have the ability to look at their own ability and go, oh Jesus, I won seventy fours or seventy nines as a junior. The adult that won that that year was Elijah. Oh, I probably won't bother. And I think we need to start educating the athletes that you know you're not starting again as an adult, but there definitely is a transitional period. And I'd probably hazard a guess of at least a couple of years. I can't think of many people even the greats that have transitioned from one to the other seamlessly, like the percentage would be tiny, I imagine. Yeah, it's pretty much the same in Taekwondo. Like there, there is one drop really? off. Like, like, yeah, college college drops off. Uh, sorry, college comes in and that kind of idea and then there's a little bit of drop off yeah. and people look around and they say, well, I can't beat that guy. or I, like, I can't beat that guy to even get on the team. Why am I bothering to, to go? Um, yeah. And then, then they stop maybe competing even in, in national tournaments. and then, so then, and then before Especially you know, when you've got the associations that only have like one place. Taekwondo is one place, right? Per weight? Or is it two? Uh, uh, two? Two. Two. So like, if you think of that, like that's still quite tight. That's a good, that's a good level. You hear some world championships and you can have four or five. It's wild. Like you're not at a world championship. You're at an open tournament, mate. Take a breath. Yeah. yeah but like, yeah. Wacko's one senior adult, you know, and as a junior, too. So I think when you're talking about these type of percentages and this kind of small numbers, it does become a lot harder for people to work out their transition. But I think that's why the World Cups, um, again, from a kickboxing point of view, they take up most of my time. That's where we spend most of our growth is at Wacko World Cups. And I absolutely love it because you're kind of getting everybody anyway. Um, and you're getting, you know, the, the second and third person who didn't make it onto their national team. And they can be the biggest problems for you half the time because sometimes as a coach, you might know a little bit less about them. And I like to be armed to the teeth with information when it comes to my team fighting other people. So I might not plan lessons, but I know every fighter that my guys will come across. And that's probably yeah. where my planning does take over. Yeah, because um, Elijah did say this, and it's one thing I always find kind of fascinating with kickboxing is that winning the Irish Open is seen as bigger than winning a Wacko World title. To some a million million times, a million times. Because like that, you have teams like Corrali and the likes that, you know, where their third best guy might be good enough to win a world title, but just can't get selected on the team, but like goes to an Irish Open and has the potential to rip it up. Yeah. Listen, like the Irish Open, what Roy's created and the, and the guys around Roy, like his support team is second to none. What he's created there is an absolute beast of a tournament. And it's the only tournament as a coach who's quite hardlined like myself will ever use the term of even getting a medal is something. Because I'm not a big believer yeah. of that term. I'm, I'm a massive, you know, you 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 win you don't you know you lose gold like it's it's you lose silver. I'm a big fan of these type of like I like winning. I really like winning. I love winning. So for me to turn around and say getting a medal in Ireland is credible, I generally mean it, and it's 
look at the open weight. It's like they're, they're crazy. And they're, they're like the dream David Goliath situations that should never be seen in combat sport, but we all love it. Like, yeah. it's, you know, Robbie Lavoie, 57 kilos, will appear against someone who's like 94 kilos. And, you know, just things like that. Like, and you can never count them out either. That's the great thing with, especially with points like contact, like, uh, points are other like light contact and taekwondo yeah someone's probably gonna die but if you look at it from a, a points open way it definitely becomes an interesting theory for sure because just because the rule set's slightly different yeah it's uh, it's always enjoyable yeah watching the uh watching the the grand champion event uh at the irish open because like you said it's mm-hmm. is, is it raymond daniels and that there that he comes to that one and you know like he, he mightn't fight at many wacko events in the year but he'll fight tends to fight at that one you know so it's well, he great. just came back after a couple of years, right? He just he got involved in the team event this year for the first time in a few years. Um, yeah. None of us were expecting it. And then, um, obviously, he jumped into the team events there. And, you know, it's, it's people like Ray, who have now obviously transitioned to like MMA, but before that kind of K1 style, those kind of spearheads. It's like, for me, like, people always said to me, like, why do you think Elijah's gone to the All-Stars over the other sponsored teams in Europe? Like, something like the Americans and All-Stars and, and Jack's another one, like Elijah has more in common with their mentality than he does with anybody else in Europe. Because in their heads, they always, they're, they're just it's the American way. They're kind of like, they're the champion, they're the best. And, and they've got no problem talking about it or saying it to themselves. I think that's kind of that winner's mentality. And I think Elijah kind of, to start off with you, you go, why has he joined an American team? And then you suddenly go, actually, he's really similar. Like he's, he's, he reminds you of like a really young Jack Felton. Like if you, if you think about it, technically point of view, mentality is my <coughs> humble person off the mat as well. And yeah. his attitude when it comes to winning and, and training and his, his ability to train. Um, like Natasha did a little stint with them as well. And people were like, why didn't you just go and join this? Why don't you go that? Again, it's that, you know, winners surround themselves with winners. And like for me that that becomes interesting when you see them line up against each other at a team event at somewhere like Ireland because they will always back themselves regardless and I think that's what you know that's the magic the Irish Open brings like that nighttime show you know is, is there's nothing like it you're dying to get on the night show yeah. um you yeah. want to get on the night show it's this, this the, the big thing so I've, I've, I've managed to like as a coach be there with with two or three fighters now and it's it doesn't get boring you feel at home it, once you've done it a few times you feel at home as a coach because you've been there but I can remember the first time with Michael and then I thought I kind of settled because he did it a couple of times but then the first time with Natasha I got the nerves came back again and then the next fight that did it I was like oh I've done this with Michael and, and Natasha it's fine and then the nerves come back again it, it, it kind of translates for every person's first time on the show you kind of take it on with them but it's, oh, it's, it's a crazy tournament this year yeah. it was, was exactly the same again did you find that maybe would the first time you've been involved in the night show maybe you would have been the second on the chair and then maybe stepping in then where you're maybe responsible you're the, you're the number one coach and they've been training with you in the build I remember the first yeah like for the first time it would have obviously been Michael and it would have been me and Drew Neal or me and I know Robbie Hughes did it at one stage as well um, and um, yeah, and I did, Jesus, they've got years on me, and they're people I, I looked up to coming through the ranks. I was more of a comfort blanket. I was the person that you know was there with Michael's day to day life, but he was part of the top ten uh, UK, and you kind of 
yeah, like for me, it was the experience overwhelmed me as much as anything. I didn't embrace it in the slightest. Like it was just a case of um, certain fighters, not just Michael, but certain fighters in general, like they don't need to be told what to do. They just need to be reminded of what they're good at. Um, and Michael barely needed that from me. That's not what I'm trying to say, but there's people there, but who, you just have to coach. You have to be a comedian when you're a coach. There's certain things you have to be able to adapt to. There's no... Some people like to be shouted at. Some people need an arm around them and spoken at an undertone. Um, but yeah, it definitely wasn't the, the primary coach in those scenarios for sure. And you know, at that stage in my, I was still fighting. At that stage, I wouldn't want it to be the the, the primary seat. No way. That would have I'd have been useless. Yeah. But so do you feel then when you work under the primary coach and step in it, like you were the one who had worked with them day to day, and about essentially like your athlete. And then stepping on to be the main guy in the chair, would you feel that like it maybe a, a bit of a different buzz to maybe when you first you first did it? Yeah, like thing everyone, whenever you coach any of your friends outside of it, like you still um, you still get a buzz. Like I coached Michael Lambert this year from Liechtenstein. He's a really good friend of mine, a cool guy, and he he uh, he won it this year, the Irish Open. He beat Alamine actually. It was a really really good fight. Um, uh, yeah, and. Yeah. I get that buzz because me and Michael and the relationship we had there, Michael Lambert, it's like rolling back the years. He's like a big kid when he wins. And then I end up being a massive yeah. kid. And we're like jumping <laughs> around like schoolgirls after we win. I'm like, mate, we're 34 years. All right, just take a breath here. Like, you know, but it, 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 the sport. idea of it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and, and the same with Natasha. Like, Natasha's won a lot. And this was maybe the fifth or sixth, fifth time she'd been on the night show. Um for the Irish Open, which I don't think many people have done. And like, we always get there, we sit in the same spot we have done on the four previous occasions to warm up, even if we're on the wrong side and we've got poor Elaine running around saying he's supposed to be on this side and what have you. Like, we sit in the same spot because that's where we first sat and we won there. And, um, you know, I still get this. The thing with Natasha is that I never feel nervous in Natasha fights. This is what people don't get. They're like, it's your wife, you should feel nervous. I'm more confident with her than anybody else because I see every second of preparation that goes into it. So the way I see it is I've seen her do everything. What's there to be nervous about? Like you need to start focusing more on what you're going to do to them, what they're going to do to you. Um, And the buzz these days is different. The buzz when she first won, it was like, oh my God, we've won it. And now since having Effie and then all these years on, regardless of Effie, she wins. And it's like, oh, thank God you've won it again. Like you've done it again. Like you have yeah. that feeling of you've repeated it, you've shown that you can, you know, stand the test on a mat. You know, Tasha's into she's, you know, how many years now? She's over twenty five years competing from a kid to an adult. So to still have the hunger to go up and get and run five miles a day, to go and do this and do that, and then on stage it's almost like it's weird. It's hard to put into words. It's like a relief, if that makes sense. Like when she wins, it's like, oh thank God it was worth it. Um, but yeah. it's still with joy. It's no resentment. It's still with joy. So yeah, then, like, what sort of setup then do you tend to like in terms of how much emphasis would you put on things like like uh, maybe running and uh, like strength and conditioning? How much emphasis would you put on that when you're training training your your, your fighters? So as a coach, even at a full time club, when you you're still limited to how many hours in a day, right? Um, all you can do is put a general recommendation. And I don't say that to disregard certain conditioning because I think it's an essential part, but an athlete has to understand the importance of it for themselves because I'm not a strength and conditioning coach. And if you're coming down for two hours of training, I'm probably not going to have time to do strength and conditioning with you on a regular basis. And 
my understanding is that for it to be worth it, it has to be done on a really well curriculated type of period of time where you're doing it on a regular basis. Saying that, like I, I live with Natasha and I see what she puts in. And if she, you know, some of it's placebo effect, of course, but some of it is obviously she's a phenomenal athlete. Like she's always in the pinnacle of condition when she fights. And I don't, I think her martial arts ability would steer through on most things. And then you could even argue that the experience she's got, she could probably get away with a lot of stuff. But the thing that the strength and conditioning side of things does for Natasha is it gives her the confidence to know she's gone through that type of training regime mentally. And I think if the running was missing, even though she says she wouldn't have to run or she didn't go and do plyometrics or something like that, I don't think it would affect her that much physically anymore. I think her body isn't like, she's kind of accustomed to it over a period of time. But mentally, I know the first time she steps on that mat, how she works, it would be like, mm, I didn't do enough. I don't know. What if I should have done this? What, you know, it's a coulda, woulda, shouldas. And I think strength and conditioning in a technical sport like kickboxing has to offer more than just physical ability. It has to be dialed into a, a mental capability that's going to make you feel confident on a mat. Um, but if there's something else within your training that makes you feel more prepared than that, then don't be afraid to overlook and adapt it individually. Some people might need 80% more conditioning than others because they're terrible athletes. But some people might actually you know, be the best athletes in the world, but technically awful. So I don't think you can just blanket any approach. I think as a coach, you can advise on what you feel they need from assessing them over a period of time and saying, listen, you need to focus more on your technique. That's awful. Or listen, you are amazing. You're the most naturally gifted timed fighter in the world, but you start blowing after a minute. Go run. Like, I don't think the level our sport is at, I don't think any of us, there's a few really educated coaches, but even from my point of view, I work on what's in front of me. And until we have the setup and facilities where we're pretty much full-time fighting coaches, I think it's an advisory role at best. Um, there's a point where jack of all trades, where you try and advise on strength and conditioning, you try and advise on technical ability, and then fighting becomes a very dangerous element to a, to a coach. When Natasha looked into, before we had the baby, looking into transitioning and with MMA, we were like, we're going to do the MMA route. And then everyone was like, cool, you're going to coach her. I was like, well, no. Like, what do you mean? I was like, well, you know, yeah. striking is a massive part of MMA. So I was like, well, no, I'm not going to do that in the slightest. I'm going to go and get someone who's really good at that to go and do it for her. I know my limitations. So we got in contact with James Doolan, who's, who's the best MMA coach in, in Scotland. Um, I sat down and had a coffee with him and I explained my situation. And he was like, yeah, it makes complete sense to me. I was like, sweet, that was an easy one. Right, bye. And then I handed my train, her training over to, to James and, you know, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, <laughs> but we had a baby instead. But um, up until that point, you know, I had, I, I felt much better and I had the same confidence that I did going into kickboxing with Natasha because I know she was ticking the boxes she needed to. I still saw her get up and run, still saw her go and do her thing. So as, as a husband now, as much as a coach, I feel good. And I know James's calibre because I looked at him and, and was like, I want her to work with him because he's the best. It's important. Yeah. So like you said, you're going to make the, looking at making that transition to MMA. And um, I kind of always... I get very frustrated when I hear this kind of thing and I'd like to get you like that, maybe like points kickboxing or maybe like that, like that kind of wacko style and even taekwondo style can't work in MMA. Um, like I said, I believe fighting is fight, fighting, is fighting, especially when it's stand-up. Yeah. Uh, you just yeah. need to 
a couple of adjustments to maybe the rule set, yeah. and um, you can you you can do very well. So I'd be interested to get your take on that one, though. That uh, okay, so that style can cross over. So first thing, first things first. Points fighting like contact and taekwondo are not stepping stones for any art. That's the first thing. We have the right and the ability to stand on our own two feet for an athlete to start and finish their career in their chosen art. So firstly, for the people who look down on us, who are in full contact in MMA, like get over yourself. It's not everybody wants to do it. Okay. Like people say, you know, I've heard coaches say, oh, we're a full contact club. You know, oh yeah, we get our kids to do points and beyond that, you know, it's, it's not, no, it doesn't really work that way. Like I've got adult points fighters that were jumping back, kick you in the, in the, in the body and you would cry. Like you would actually cry. So don't diminish what we do. That's the first thing. If a fighter decides to start and finish their career in their style, we have an infrastructure in place that allows them to shine at the top level, be it a, a world title or the, something like the Irish Open. If you make the decision to transition to MMA, I think it's starting to prove itself, is it not? Like, I would think so, there's, yeah. There's two brackets here that we have to be very careful of. Raymond, for example, your Raymond, Michael, that type of bracket. Like, both of them weren't just points fighters. They were tatami-based fighters that competed at, the, at a really high level. Like, Michael was as successful with light contact as he was with points throughout his whole career. Yep. Raymond has established himself in K1 as much as he did in points fighting. So, yeah, that's the first bracket. They are map even, fighters even originally. But yeah, another one. No, yeah, again, exactly cropped over styles, you know, points, but also, yeah, has competed in other, in other disciplines as well. I think they're the most successful out of the subcategories. I do think there's just another, another category coming through, which is more like more point-style fighting that then go to MMA. I do believe that having a better, well-rounded, you know, tatami life, shall we say. So, like, for example, a points fighter who's done taekwondo, I think would fare better earlier in an MMA career because they're just more well-rounded. Like, they've got a little bit more under their belt. They've scrapped it out. They've been in kind of, like, different, different types of distancing. Whereas if you're just coming from points, I think sometimes, especially now, because we've got people like me hyping points up and <laughs> they can be, you know, not that I'm important, but there's a lot of people that will say points can do anything. I truly believe that, but you have to go through the motions. Like, again, when Natasha went to transition to MMA, Natasha didn't strike for a very long time when she transitioned to MMA, like when she trained. She never got to fight it, but James put her on her ass for most of the sessions and told her to get up, try and stand up now. So, yeah. like, that, and she's well-rounded. She's got titles in full contact up to, you know, uh, semi-pro European full contact titles. So, like, I think it's a dangerous thing. I think points fighters will always be very successful because of the foundation that we have. But I'd like to see points fighters maybe do have that option. to. And we, we've got the option really easy. That's what makes it a little bit silly. Like, spend some time doing some light contact get into a ring in full contact and then go into MMA. Those stepping stones aren't to say that the arts are getting better and stronger as you go through. They're just different. I think if you have the points as your foundation or your traditional art as your foundation, kind of go through the, 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 you know, the hoops. I'm not going to say ranks or levels because I don't think they are levels. I think they stand next to each other in difference. Um, Because like you said, the, the guys that are doing great are probably not just done points. They're great fighters, like you said earlier on. You know, fighting's fighting. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think 
I love. I think the best thing for us is for people to keep undermining tatami sport. It's only going to give us a little bit of edge for the person that suddenly takes us for granted, thinks we're an easier fight for their first or second fight, and then gets wasted with a lead leg side kick, which is what we learn after four weeks of training. Like, the, the more people kind of underplay tatami sport, the better it is for the tatami fighters transitioning. Yeah, like I said, like I think kind of going through the transition maybe of tatami to the ring and then maybe it could be into a cage. That's more so like because of the, the space you're fighting in like that, it's, you have to adjust to the rule set and also the distance is a little bit different. Maybe the timing could be a bit different. Yeah. Conditioning to bit different um, match lengths. Uh, like that's all an adjustment to maybe getting to the end goal, not because the, that sport is necessarily tougher. Like it's still mm-hmm. game, distance, timing, rhythm, that all kind of stuff. It's just, it's a little bit different and it can take that. Yeah. Time to time to adjust. Not necessarily you have to get tougher or change your techniques, but it takes a bit of time to adjust that timing and the distance. I think it's the toughness that most points fighters take precedent with, even with light contact and like points versus light contact. Light contact looks tougher. Why we throw hooks and uppercuts? Yeah, but we throw back kicks as well. And like if you get a counter, if you blitz incorrectly and get caught with a counter side kick when someone's coming at you 100 miles an hour, that sucks as well. I think I think that that seems to actually that's nullified a lot more these days because um a lot of points guys are transitioning and being very successful in light contact so i don't think there's much as much question about that as there there has been in the past but i do think um when you see the full contact arts like oh they can't do this they can't do that or they're you know they're not tough enough i think i think there needs to be a little bit more respect (laughs) because some of the stuff we do you know day in day out or five or six times in five or six different fights on a tournament day when you've had your one your three two minute round fight and then you've got another one in the fight night because you're selling 500 pounds worth of tickets to your pals for a night out like i think what we're doing day in day out will kind of show the test of time anyway yeah, like I, I love to see people for the, who who do cross over, like whether it's even from whether it's from taekwondo, points, kickboxing, anything like that, mm. like, like fantastic. I love to see them cross over and do really well in those sports because I feel it does give a, it it grows the standing of, the, of those type of sports that you know, no, they yeah. just don't work and this idea that. You know, like that Joe Rogan often tries to sell that Taekwondo, you know, because he comes from the other style of Taekwondo that, oh, that doesn't work. And I stopped doing Taekwondo, went to kickboxing because uh, it wasn't work once I saw uh, this idea of a of a real fight, whatever that is. Um, uh, that, uh, that doesn't work. So it's like, well, that's a completely different kind of sport. Like that doesn't, that's not nearly yeah. Taekwondo. There's another version of Taekwondo where we do punch. And there's yeah, all, I, see, like, I, like to, I like to see that perception change that. No, no. They, these sports, I think that's mostly ill education though, to be honest with you. I think that's just ill yeah. education. Because yeah. when, when people come to my gym and they're like, like to start off with in my career, like 10, 15 years ago, they were like Taekwondo. I was like, oh, wicked. Right. Where's your body pad? Show me what you look like. And you kind of like, oh, no, no, I do ITF. I'm like, oh, not the real one then. But that was kind of like an ill education for people coming in. And then, like, you get the people who have done really well. You talk about transitional athletes in the same respect. Look at Damon Sampson. Like, I don't know if you know Damon. Damon was a points fighter in Scotland, into top 10 UK, and had a very successful, only recently retired from WTF Taekwondo. Yeah. I, I fought Damon and know Damon to be super tough. And, like, he chose that as a career path and did really well for himself. So like yeah. there's so many different ways. No, no one should be looked down upon on what route you decide to transition in because it's what suits you, the individual, right? That Damon obviously felt good with that one. And he, you know, like I said, he's really established himself, 
But don't get it twisted. He, he could bang. Like, if he, if he chose to have a little war with your hands or legs, and he was super neutral at the time. He wasn't, like, just a kicker. He could bang. Um, so I think it's quite funny when you see people – every sport has got its element, and within every sport there's an individual, and every individual will break a mould somewhere along the line. And it's usually, yeah, it's, like yeah. I said, the, it's the winners again. The winners will always come out somewhere along yeah. the line. And yeah. I think Joe Rogan's just really good at like stirring up conversation as well. Like that, that guy can fold a bag. So you can't really yeah. talk about WTF not being, um, not, not working because like, you'll be like, yeah, yeah. You know, but now I've seen jujitsu. Yeah, dude. But we've seen a video of you like proper traditional sidekick in a bag till it folds in half. Like he obviously does appreciate where he comes from, but some of it's hilarious. Like, yeah, like you I, said, I the, Gary Neville Like he, he's a guy with a he's a guy with a platform, and then he gets the chance to give his opinion. So his opinion maybe gets heard more so than yeah, other people. You know, it's that kind of thing as well. To say exactly what we want to say on a regular basis is amazing. <laughs> but uh, so the, like I think as well when you said like a stepping stone to some degree, like it's mm. the only unfortunate thing is that you have the chance to go professional in MMA and potentially you know. It makes some money now the amount of money you're going to make is uh is varied but like it's very hard like a lot of the sports for us it's it's, it's self-funding so i think that's yeah. kind of maybe the, the one of the challenges that we do face with like being seen as stepping stone sports yeah that's yeah like the thing you got to think about right is like you'd have got into taekwondo for the reasons that you wanted to maybe compete. You wanted to, you know, enjoy some social time. Everyone's got their reasons for joining martial arts. And I think if you manage your expectation, like people are talking about the Olympics and our Olympic bid right now, if it happens, fantastic. Like, you know, the guys at the top who are much better informed than me will, will know the, the, the pros and the cons, the good, the bad and, and the ugly. But like for me, when you get into the sport, you kind of like there's enough of a journey within our individual arts to still enjoy it and coaches have gone on to prove that there is a life after fighting and you know from a business point of view you still can do stuff it's not the end of the road as an amateur sport you're not going to be able to go professional um i think you talked about the long game earlier on like it yeah. depends what your long game's at is your long game you know you studying at school really hard and enjoying a sporting career on the sideline or are people are people gonna you know use it as a stepping stone there will be a stepping stone for sure but my point is more the fact that if someone chooses not to go professional rather than the choice of going professional it, it shouldn't be looked down upon and i think sometimes we run that risk of people just saying Oh yeah, but you're not professional. No, no, but I enjoyed myself. I went to a world championships. I fought the best that kickboxing provided. Like every every part, it's just, you, know, you can say it for every sport. How many people enjoy going out every week to play rugby? And you know, yeah. up to semi-professional level, some people don't have any interest in going professional. And I think as a sport, you can never cater for the maybe that person will become a professional full-time athlete. We can make it feel as professional as we do. Like I, I, I try and run a tight ship for my competitors from, you know, making sure that they have a percentage. If they don't train, they don't compete. If I don't see them on a regular basis. You're in a tournament ban. If they don't conduct themselves in a manner that I see, you know, is the right way to do it. They won't compete that, that week. And it comes down to team selection. 
my team selection is based on, you know, what's going on in the gym right there and then. That's not a question. And it's certainly something I'm not going to be putting past a parent. If I made that decision, I'm not looking for your opinion. I'm looking for you to do what I want. And I think there's levels of professionalism that you can cater for in amateur sport that doesn't have to make you feel like a stepping stone. Um, if you, I'm sure there's some gyms out there that are pretty cool in the fact that they can take you all the way through. Like, you know, we're going to see a time when, People will probably jump on board, get a massive super center and teach points fighting, light contact, K1, full contact, MMA in the overall goal of being a professional athlete. Um, you know, and that's going to come back to your original questions about like, well, when do you start celebrating success? Is it done as a junior? Do we celebrate it as an amateur at senior level? Or do we hold on a second? We better not do that because they haven't won the UFC yet. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's going yeah. to make more dialogue, more interesting as time goes by. I do see a time when there'll be more facilities doing stuff like that. Um, and again, not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not the path that I'm on as a coach. Um, I'm quite happy to stay in my little box. Um, I think my box is, is relatively decent in the fact that we cover for cater for quite a lot of people. We've opened up to other styles like Taekwondo happily. And now they're one of the biggest assets in the club. Um, and, you know, we, we're involved at the very highest level of our sport. If it goes on to the Olympics, happy days. But from my point of view, I didn't get into kickboxing for the Olympic dream. I got into kickboxing for kickboxing. So, and the infrastructure that we're involved in, I think it's pretty good. Like the level is the best around. So I don't really second guess that. And I leave all that other important stuff about the Olympics to the people that are a lot more intelligent than me. Um, yeah. which is absolutely fine. <laughs> and do you, in your own opinion, do you think you, uh, the kickboxer could potentially get to the Olympics at some point? Oh, I, don't, I generally don't think I'm well informed enough to answer the question. You know, we, you can break it down. Which part of kickboxing do you want to talk about? We want about points, we want about forms. Is it K1? Do you want to talk about low kick? What about full contact? Like, That's the they all can't, challenge. They, they all can't get in, right? Yeah, see, I think potentially what could happen is, well, this is maybe from my own understanding, is that like kickboxing could be given um, a certain amount of medals and then it could be up to Wacko to decide, well, you have 12 medals, you did maybe decide. Now, maybe there's probably some influence there on like what do people want to watch on the telly? What do they want to go and watch in the arena? Yeah. Go and watch it's also points. the similarities as well. It's making sure that our styles that we have within the Wacko bracket are different enough for not to clash with another sport that's already Olympic recognized, but also making sure that it's not too far from the forefront. So it's unrecognizable. Um, it's, a, it's a fine line. And like what you just said there, if that's your general understanding, you have a better understanding off the bat than I do. I, I generally right now with everything that's going on, like Roy Baker was recently made WACO president uh, worldwide. And I'm one of the people that was extremely happy with that appointment because Roy obviously is a go-getter and gets stuff done. Um, he might shout and scream and when you get stuff wrong and you're in the wrong part of the, the hall of the Irish Open, like, I've got no problem with that because it's usually me that's in the wrong. But he gets stuff done. So I, I truly believe that he's proactive enough and he's got some really good people around him. Um, and like my job has never been uh, massively like, you know, up there and it never will be. It's not what I'm interested in. I don't, I don't get off on that. I still like being the man on the ground actually coaching. So I have to put my faith in the people that, like I said, 
with no disregard to my own intelligence, are more intelligent and are more informed to make the right decisions for the sport. Um, and hopefully that happens. But could I see it happen? Yeah, possibly. Is it going to be in my coaching lifestyle, uh, lifetime? Maybe not. Will it be in Effie, my daughter's, you know, coaching career or fighting career? She's two now. Maybe. But I also understand the hurdles and the, the hoops you have to go through are extensive. Um, and I don't think it just depends. If it just depended on Waco, who I have a lot of faith in right now, then, yeah, probably got a really good chance. But kickboxing is a lot bigger than Waco. And yeah, yeah. that's going to come into play sooner rather than later, where people who are you know, feeling sorry for themselves aren't necessarily going to go along with that way. Um, we just generally, from my point of view, I don't know. All I know is that if it doesn't happen, I quite like where we are. And I quite like having a world and the Europeans and an Irish Open. I get to go to Austria and see my friends there. I get to go and see all the other nuts in Ireland at the uh, Damien Gormley tournament and my tiger. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is what's making my life quite hard right now. And yes, we know it's a very serious situation, but massive part of my, you know, my friendship circle is ironically outside of Scotland. Like <laughs> some of my best friends are in Ireland and in Austria and in Germany. Like there's something in Greece. Like, I get to go and teach with Nikos Memos every year at a summer camp on a beautiful Greek Island for a week. I get to teach six hours a day if I choose to, to people from around the world. I don't need the Olympics to feel happy about my job, but yeah. I'm sure there's some people that will see the benefits of it. But for me, I've seen transitional athletes go into to Olympic sports, shall we say, and I've seen the good, the bad, and the very ugly side of that side of it as well, from people who've been super successful and made great careers to people who've been you know, binned after a few weeks, they didn't fit the criteria. I think, I think it's like anything, and it's like any sport of a professional nature. Like, it's not, you can't just look at the good. You've got to potentially see what the bad side of it is as well. But again, yeah. there's people who are more informed than me that will make better decisions, hopefully. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing about like Wacko getting IOC recognition is the, the potential to, for to have the athletes funded. That if you can yeah. go to a national governing body and say, well, look, our sport has IOC recognition, then even though it's not in the Olympics, they could still come and may potentially give some funding to that association, which could filter down to athletes at some point, which I think like that's potentially the biggest benefit of having IOC recognition is that some athletes could end up being able to gain some funding, which of course then means that they don't have to... It'd, it'd be interesting to, to see how it works. But the MMA, but... Yeah, it could be, It'd be yeah. interesting, because I, I don't understand it fully, but if you look at like GB Taekwondo, who's the closest thing I've seen around like there's still a hundred and you know hundreds of uh, WTF taekwondo clubs right now they're all olympic sport i'm assuming because they're under WTF do they get a lot of funding or is it just the gb taekwondo team that get funded to a good level oh i don't know much about that now that's that's a different that's that's the thing (laughs) for me like I'm, i'm not sure how much like funding can affect club level for example or would it be like, um, say we talk about Ireland, so I'm not talking about GB the whole time, so it looks dodgy. But like, imagine, imagine um, like Wacko kickboxing, probably you know one of the best nations, you know, easily top ten nations in kickboxing. Now, does the Irish team Ireland get the funding, or what about the club level? Because that's what I care about at this stage for me is my not just the one great athlete in my gym, but the fifteen great athletes I have in my gym. Are they going to be directly, you know, helped with the funding if we got it, or would it be? just the team is is there's not there's, there's not enough information out there or, or i've been bad and just not looked at it enough 
to give a real decent opinion on it. I've just got to do the what ifs or who's it going to affect. And it kind of makes my whole thing kind of invalid because I'm just not informed enough. Yeah, I I have to say I'm not fully sure. I think it often depends in a roundabout way, like who provided funding and like, was yeah. it, you know, it was it's like you said, it's a, it's, it's a, there's different people higher up that would know more than, than myself. Yeah. But you said you are yourself, but yeah, it's a, I suppose, yeah, we can't have a full opinion like that. Like it, it is where, where does that funding go? Where does it come from? And, you should definitely get someone who's more intelligent than us. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it could be a good conversation to have you know like with people more informed on that i don't know how much information we get at this stage of their, their application mind but um i think it would be interesting to find out like how it would work and if it would work and are we just all holding on to a dream that wouldn't potentially work for like i don't know it's it's a different bracket altogether isn't it really yeah well uh, maybe kind of two more things before we uh kind of finish up because yeah uh, is a uh, I've been asking up people on the last couple of podcasts is uh favorite fighter of all time. Any sports, oh, kickboxing, boxing, MMA. If you had to pick a favorite fighter, who would it be? Oh, absolutely stumped. Uh, okay, so here's a, it's a bit of a random, there's loads of people in kickboxing and it's really cliche to pick them, I think. Um, like, I wouldn't be able to do one person. Like, the, the funny one for me was like the first time I realised like an, a humble athlete was when I met John Franco Zola from Chelsea back in the day. Um, oh, yeah. He's the first professional. I met look, where I had my club down south in, in Cobham before I moved to Scotland. Um, Chelsea's training ground, ironically, moved into there. I saw a lot of athletes that weren't very humble. <laughs> um, when I, a good few years prior to that, like I was doing work experience at a Citroen car garage when I was maybe 17. And um, John Franco Zola rode past me on a bicycle that had a basket on the front of it. And I saw him from the window, recognised him, shouted, Zola! And he got off the bike. And I said, I can't believe I'm meeting you. You're my favourite player. And I literally said to him, you're half of my PIN number for my card. And he, he kind of laughed and um, he, he signed a piece of paper for me saying to Kevin, lovely to meet you, pretty soon. I was like, bye, like, bye. give me the biggest hug, which you now, as years go on, realise the Italians are infamous for, um, probably one of yeah, my yeah. favourite nations of, of people. Um, so it's, for me, it was the first time he was, he was a true great on a football pitch. He did stuff there that people didn't know how to do. And he was just a really good human being. I guess it's that affinity with... I like great athletes who are also great human beings. So, yeah, probably he's one of my favourites. Nice. I'm not uh, answering uh, who's my favourite martial artist because I couldn't tell you. Uh, so if you said uh, pick a favourite fight, favourite fight to watch? Favourite fight? Oh. Yeah. But now one fight, what are you picking? Oh, Jesus. Uh, oh, that was a good one. Um... Bev, this is points fighting, and it was in uh, Bristol, and it was Bev versus Louisa. Um, I'll send you the link so you can see it yourself. Anyway, but it was a uh, it was an amazing fight, and it was I think I think she was she got booted like Louisa from Italy got psychic in the jaw, pretty much like in a really bad way, like almost put out, and. Um, she gets up, gets a minute, two seconds left on the clock, and 
She kind of ducks under Bev's leg, who goes hunting for the point again, and hook kicks Bev in the face. Um, Bev picks her up and kind of dumps her, but all the referees judged it as she shouldn't have done that, and the head kick actually stood. But it was that presence of mind that Louisa had in that moment to do the bravest thing, which was to go into the leg again, underneath it, and hook kick her. Um, I remember standing on the side of that fight, and you just think, when she got that first psychic to face, she thought it was pretty much over. Um, um, so for, for that to kind of happen in front of me was probably one of the most stand-up moments I'd ever seen. Um, and Bev and Louisa are probably two of the biggest um, names in female wacko points fighting. I used to I love watching both of them, and Tash got to fight both of them, and I coach against them. And uh, for me, seeing them at that stage is pretty cool. I'll send you the link. You'll, you'll see what I mean for sure. Yeah, we'll put the link in the uh, even in the description. So when people yeah, it's one. Of, I think it's one of Danny's, Danny's Levins. So um, we'll, we'll sort some advertising out for Brand Man Dan. No bother. <laughs> if he could sort some out from Eden, that would be great as well. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's uh, it's been a pleasure having the chat, man. Uh, really, I've yeah, really enjoyed likewise. the chat actually. Um, so thanks a million for coming on, and because uh, I know hopefully we'll all get back training and. And yeah, to coaching soon enough. Yeah, listen, thanks very much. And uh, obviously look after yourself and we'll have a chat in person at some stage, I'm sure. Yeah, I know that I'll, uh, I'll float around the Irish Open soon enough. I, ha- I have competed at one or two and uh, I have went oh, to nice. watch, but um, but yeah, I haven't managed to get to the last one or two, but maybe maybe come uh, to the 2021. Try and get to Damien's one in Ireland as well, White Tiger. That's a really good event. I was meant to fight at that one last year in the, the team points, believe it or not, but something kind of came up with something else came up with Taekwondo. So I was meant to oh, fight right. with uh, I was meant to fight with Hong and uh, Hong and Brendan. So uh, we were meant to have a team. No way! So I was over there. I had um, I had Michael and Jules over at that last year as well, who I know know you very well. So yeah, um, yeah, that we we try and do we support that one every year. So if there's another tournament line to recommend, it's definitely that one. Uh, Damien's a really good guy. Looks after everybody get seminars going and it's really good for beginners so anyone coming up through the ranks as well it's definitely one I'd recommend for sure probably yeah so that, actually that, that's one I'll hopefully put on the list to do so that later on in the year yeah but, do, uh, do. well like I said pleasure man and thanks for coming on no bother take care see you soon cheers man all the best bye bye, bye.